Hey there, welcome back to Sinai. <laughs> I read a book while you were away. It was the book of Judith. It is often compared to the story related to the prophet of De prophetess Deborah and the story of Esther. So uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about it. Chapter 1 and 2 describes Nebuchadnezzar as a prideful warlord that had to fight his way to power because no one took him seriously prior to his violent decree upon all flesh which did not obey the commandment of his mouth. These go on into his conquest leading up to the main story. And then in chapter 3, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar sought to be elevated to the status of God over the land. And his footmen, in order to assure this, destroyed all the gods of the land. So I guess they went out and toppled gods of silver, gold, and wood. So, throughout these chapters, Nebuchadnezzar's speech certainly sounds as though he's trying to speak in, a similar, in similar words as God has throughout the Bible. It's very, very clear that the author of this book wants to make certain we all know how arrogant Nebuchadnezzar was. In chapter 4, we see the people of Judea and Jerusalem come together in order to ask for God's protection. They put on sackcloth, throw ashes over their heads, get their servants to join in, fast, sacrifice, and pray. This event illustrates a beautiful understanding of what can happen when a large religious community comes together under the banner of a singular belief system. And we actually see this many times throughout the Old Testament. Today, there are times I read of events like this, and, and I wonder what it would be like if all of Christendom came together to do this, regardless of our denominations. We have such diverse ideas within the various sects that we're rarely ever on the same page. And during all this COVID stuff, yeah, it's even worse. I guess, you know, it's kind of a good thing I'm in the desert. Of course, if Sinai is all in my imagination, how many people have I been running into that might be, have been carrying it? Ooh, probably not a good idea to dwell on that. Okay, so anyways, my point is, is that during all this COVID stuff, I've seen people in, indiv in individual churches call for prayer, some denominations doing so, but then even their entire congregation seemed to just push it to the side. That's kind of sad. Sometimes I wonder if the people in the Old Testament were the same way. It says all of Israel, Judea, or Jerusalem, right? But... Really, I wonder how many actually engaged in it. How many people hid out thinking it was just a show and nothing really came from doing these things? Still, it would be nice to have someone so revered within the Christian community that Catholics and Protestants alike would feel compelled to join together as one voice and ask God for the miracle that we so desperately need. Could you imagine Christians across the world coming together within the same 24 hours at every corner of the planet in prayer for God's aid on a singular problem we can all agree needs God's miracle? I think the Bible makes it clear that when it's something that impacts the whole community, then more than a singular church within the community needs to be involved in intercession. Well, you know, unless we get it wrong and it's not actually all of them. Even a prophet could only intercede so much as God's hand, to ask God's hand to be stayed. I mean, you know, Moses being basically the exception. 
chapter 5 recounts the story of the Israelites from Abraham until the time of this story. And the servant, which summarizes the Israelites' life, draws a conclusion at the end of this that his master, uh, for his master to con consider. And here it is. It's um, chapter 5, 17 through 21. And whilst they sinned not before their God, they prospered because that God that hates iniquity was with them. But when they departed from the way which he appointed them, they were destroyed in many battles, very sore, and were led captives into a land that was not theirs. And the temple of their God was cast to the ground, and their cities were taken by the enemies. But now are they returned to their God, and are they come up from places where they were scattered, and have possessed Jerusalem, where their sanctuary is, and are seated in the hill country? For it was desolate. Now therefore, my Lord and governor, if there be any error against this people, and they sin against their God, let us consider that this shall be their ruin, and let us go up, and we shall overcome them. But if there is no iniquity in their nation, let my Lord now pass by, lest their Lord defend them, and their God be for them, and we become a reproach before all of the world. Hofornes who is the, uh, the, the servant here. He's the man in charge of the conquest, right? And the, he tells the men that the Israelites shouldn't be feared even after this. So in, in chapter 6, you see Hofernes speak up saying, And who art you, Achiar? So I'm sorry, he, he wasn't the, he was the man in charge of the conquest, not the, not the servant. Akiar was. Who art you, Akiar, the hirelings of the Ephraim, that you have prophesied against us as today, and have said that we should not make war with the people of Israel, because their God will defend them? And who is God but Nebuchadnezzar? He will send his power and will destroy them from the face of the earth, and their God shall not deliver them. But we, his servants, will destroy them as one man, for they are not able to sustain the power of our horses. For with them we will tread them underfoot, and their mountains shall be drunken with their blood, and their fields shall be filled with their dead bodies, and their footsteps shall be not be able to stand before us. For they shall utterly perish, saith King Nebuchadnezzar, Lord of all the earth. For he said, None of my words shall be in vain. And you, Akiar, a hireling of Ammon, which have spoken these words in the day of your iniquity, or your iniquity, shall see my face no more from this day until I take vengeance of this nation that came out of Egypt. And then shall the sword of mine army and the multitude of them that serve me pass through your sides, and you shall fall among their slain when I return. Now, therefore, my servants shall bring you back into the hill country and shall set you in one of the cities of the passages, and you shall not perish till you be destroyed with them. The Israelites saved Achiar from further torture, and Achiar was able to tell them what had happened and what Holofernes' declaration was. The people of Israel praised God and asked that he magnify himself to those who would mock him. 
So the scene reminds me of a similar situation in Isaiah 37. King of Assyria pronounces that God will not save them from his conquest because no other god has, had done so before uh, in their own tribe, uh, of, their, of their own tribe. So like no gods of other tribes had saved their tribes from, from the Assyrians. So Hezekiah goes in, he pleads with God to not let the king of Assyria mock him. Isaiah returns the message to Hezekiah, assuring him that God is on the side of Israel and he will cause the Assyrian army to go back home. In chapter 7, we see a strategy developed by the tribe of Esau. It's a brilliant plan. By cutting off the water to the city, the people would lose their strength and would not be able to fight. By the end of the chapter, after only about a day, the majority of the city is willing to give up because of this. Now, although Esau made up uh, with his brother Jacob, it's disturbing that we can still see this feud spiritually entwined between the two brothers inside the story. After all, who knows best how to disrupt you than your own family? So, you know, kind of a cool little thing in there. Anyways, as I was working through the story, it, as I work through the story, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the prophecy working or regarding Esau and Jacob plays out. You know, Esau have I loved, Jacob have I hated. Because previously God declared to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. So chapter 8 is where the story really begins. Judith is a widow who is constantly fasting and apparently has a good reputation for being a wise woman. So she pulls the elders aside and admonishes them for making a pact with the governor. The pact being either God saves us or we surrender when God doesn't. And then they gave the governor a timetable for when this should be accomplished. So despite Judith making a clear case, the elders have found themselves in a position where they have made this pact and feel they can't do anything now to impact the situation one way or the other. Having put the problem on God, they feel the only option is to get Judith to pray for rain. All right. So in some measure, I can see this line of thought being influenced by the sacrifice Jeff Tath makes in Judges 11. He makes a promise to God that if he is able to claim victory over his enemy, then he'll offer as a burnt offering the first thing that he sees when he gets home. And that ends up being his daughter. At a later date, I'll talk about that story. Um, but for now, one of the interpretations of that story is that once you create a contract with God, you can't back out of it. The scholars, which believe Jeff Tath actually offered his daughter as a burnt offering, believe that it's entirely possible God hates oathbreakers more than human sacrifice. So back to the story, Judith has her own idea. Possibly inspired by another story in uh, Judges, the story of Deborah and Jael. She tells the elders that the Lord will visit Israel by her hand. In chapter 9, she prostrates herself before God and prays that she, that she has said what she has said will come true. She makes grand statements pleading with God that, he might, uh, that his will might shine through and illustrate that only God can and does protect Israel. So there are certain, certainly interesting points to bring up. On the surface, she seems to be mirroring Hezekiah, who asks similar things. But the difference is that she determines before God speaks anything 
that she'll be the hand of justice. Hezekiah asked for God's deliverance and seeks God's answer before doing anything. In her defense, she doesn't seem to have a high priest or prophet which can tell her God's plans, but the predetermined nature of her request puts her at the center of the story rather than God at the center of it. So, eh. Then you have the difference between her and Deborah. Deborah was a prophetess. We are led to believe by virtue of the title that God was the one who told her Cicero's, Cicero's life would be taken by the hand of a woman. And by her, I mean Deborah. He told Deborah this. Furthermore, despite the fact that Deborah went into battle with Israel, it wasn't actually Deborah who would take the life of Sisera, but instead a woman he believed his ally named Jael. The orchestration by God to have someone other than Deborah exact justice would be further evidence of Deborah's prophecy rather than one which could be seen as a self-fulfilled prophecy. So far, Judah's story is playing out as though she's pushing God to bend to her will rather than following his. But she's not the only one in this town that is doing so. The elders seem to be following after the will of the people as well. Instead of turning to God first, they are orchestrating man-created demands and ultimatums. In such a subtle it's such a subtle difference that it would be difficult to discern, I'm sure, if it hadn't been included in the canon. Who knows? Perhaps there is more to the story that will redeem it? Maybe? For now, I'm, I'm just going to leave this with our for us to consider. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain is about saying, attributing God's will for something you believe it to be. And it's also about your heart. Hezekiah seems to be earnest in his request that God do something about his enemies because Hezekiah loves God. He also had garnered favor with God by working to restore the faith. But here, the elders seem to demand God affirm himself through a miracle of some kind. And while Judith at least makes the effort to be pious, she seems to presume much about her standing with God, speaking to him and the group as though she's on par with a prophet. Mm, I guess we'll see. We'll see.